everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. We're back with week two on church history. We kicked off last week talking about the need that we believe to study church history for many reasons. One, to connect us to our past, that we have a legacy that that dates back thousands of years, that is the soil out of which we spring. And when I started studying church history, I was just blown away at the connectedness I felt with these believers who'd gone before us in all kinds of different circumstances and different settings, different countries, but dealing with a lot of the same issues that we deal with, manifesting the work of the Spirit. And it's an amazing thing to get connected with our spiritual past, and but not only our spiritual heritage, but then to learn from what they walked through. It's amazing to see that the church has gone through just these cycles of Uh, debates and and dealing and wrestling with the same issues that we are wrestling with today. And we can learn a ton just by uh, looking at the work that they've put in to discerning these issues uh, with the Holy Spirit. And then we looked at the first several hundred years of church history. If you haven't listened to that episode, definitely go back and take a listen before picking up in this episode. Looked at the the birth of the church, these unlikely people that really are a testament and apologetic to the work of the Spirit through these uneducated, often poor, rural settings that the church was birthed in and then came to dominate the Roman Empire in just a few short centuries and looked at some of the problems in the early church, especially with growth and and these ebbs and flows of these cycles of of the need to distribute power and, and how to manage this fledgling church that just exploded onto the scene and grew to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of members by the middle of the fourth century. And so that brings us to where we are today. We're going to pick back up. We left off right before Constantine comes on the scene. And we're going to pick up today and charge through the rest of church history today. Like Drew mentioned last week, we're going to look specifically at canon creeds and heresies in some coming weeks. So this isn't the end of a dialogue here on church history. Again, we'd love to hear your questions and thoughts. Feel free to email us as we continue on our way here. So picking back up, if you have looked at church history at all, then you will see that Constantine's conversion was a decisive shift in the history of the church. Up till this point, it had been a fringe movement early on, especially. It had been gaining more traction around the Roman Empire. But with Constantine's conversion, it brought Christianity to the center of Roman power, Roman political power. And depends upon who you read, you're going to find a range of opinions as to whether this was a boon for Christianity or whether this was a setback for Christianity. Uh, We'll share our opinions as we go. But what we can't disagree on is the fact that this was a monumental moment for the church. And so I'm going to kick it over to Drew to pick back up here around the middle of the fourth century, continuing our dialogue on church history. Yeah, I think a a modern way to maybe understand Constantine conversion would be if you looked at the Chinese church, where there's a vibrant and large house church movement, you know, numbering, I mean, maybe even into the hundred plus million people. But for the most part, they have been persecuted. And at times it's been state-sponsored and widespread. At other times it's been sporadic. 
And that would be very similar to what happened in Rome, you know, depending on the province you lived in, depending on the time you were born. Um, there's been periods of time in the last 50 years where Chinese house churches have had a decent amount of freedom, even though on a governmental level it hasn't officially been recognized. But then there's other times where they've been very heavily persecuted. And sometimes that's happening simultaneously, um, depending on the geography. So just picture if out of the blue someday that premier of China came to faith and then um, shortly thereafter, many of the upper echelons of party leadership came to faith, it would fundamentally alter the course of the Chinese church. And, you know, you would just think suddenly this group that's been largely persecuted, even though it's large and very urban and still been very heavily persecuted, is now uh, has access to power and, and to things they just never had access before. And, you know, and so I think in the same way as we look at Constantine's conversion, do you understand it as a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, of course, I would imagine that that was an incredible relief and answer to prayer for so many Christians, and there's certainly a good fruit that came from it. But the flip side, um, the more that you mix the church with power, it introduces all kinds of complexity. And um, we've said in the past a quote that I really appreciate from the missiologist Andrew Walls, um, that the gospel is both the prisoner and the liberator of culture, where it does renew the culture from within and bring about tremendous change. But as it mixes in with the power dynamics of that culture over time, eventually it can come under just the same things that always tend to corrupt, wealth, power, and and things like that. And I think that's a, a helpful way maybe of understanding what happened during this time. So the Anabaptist traditions and other, you know, quote-unquote radicals, which we would probably tend towards this direction, would lament this time and say it was when the church was first corrupted. That's probably a little bit of an um, idealistic reading. I think there were some of the same problems in the church prior to Constantine that just came to the fore a little bit more prominently afterwards, but certainly something shifted. Whereas other church traditions, um, Catholic and Orthodox, would see this as a providential time when the kingdoms of the world started to become the kingdoms of our God. And I'd suggest both were maybe happening, even though I tend to view this time a little more negatively. I do think it's important to recognize that Rome was the most powerful empire in human history. And it just blows me away. I mean, think about this, that about 280 years after the crucifixion of a common man in in Israel, I mean, we're talking about a minor province on the edge of the Roman Empire, a province that was later destroyed because of rebellion, and, and a common man from that province was crucified. And somehow, within 280 years, the Roman Empire himself would bow down and proclaim the kingship of Christ. I mean, that's miraculous. Like, <laughs> you have to look at that and be like, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, it's, uh, you think of all the Bible verses, um, but they conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, you know, and, and you, you see that. I mean, it's incredible. Yet, at the same time, I think so many of the things that ended up, from my perspective, leading the church astray were introduced around this same time. And I think in some ways we're still dealing with the fallout from that. And so it's, it's complex how we understand it. Like all change, though, it was gradual. So it's not like Constantine converted and everything changed the next day. Instead, it set in motion some developments. And on the positive side, the fact that the church was persecuted for so long had hindered, you know, things like the formalization of the canon, the establishment of creeds. And part of that was just the ability to gather people and producing the um, codex, which are like a precursor to modern books and just all that kind of stuff. Um, suddenly having some degree of state support and later becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire did allow for a necessary formalization of a lot of those kind of things that I think were actually helpful for the church. But 
that formalization, you know, once it got started, it just kept continuing. And then before long, the church hierarchy started to look a lot like the Roman hierarchy. And a lot of um, the Roman power structure was absorbed into the church structure. And that certainly took a negative turn that eventually culminated in the Reformation. You know, it's amazing. Even today, I was looking at the news earlier this morning, and the Supreme Court's convening again here to talk about several hot-button topics. And one of them is this ongoing question of the separation of church and state. And they're going to be looking at a case involving the, the funding of private schools that that teach a kind of a religious perspective and and can public funds be used, you know, to fund different programs in these institutions. And this goes back literally all the way to this epic, this time period of Constantine. And this has been a, a really fascinating element to look at in church history is the conflating of spiritual authority with political authority. And this is where I think what you're, what you're hinting at is where we would say that this has been a predominantly negative legacy from the era of Constantine is that when you when you bring together these two types of power, you get all sorts of corruption that follows in its wake. And again, there are some positive things that come out here, but the, the net effect seems to be one that has introduced a, a very difficult theme that the church has yet to fully parse out. And it's this, how do we engage in political discourse and where are the limits? And you can go back to our episodes on you know politics as religion from last fall that, that we're seeing the church still grappling with today, trying to grasp for political power. And I think we see this in a distilled form in this era of the church in the fourth century. And I'd say too, even in the realm of missions today, where you see countries where the gospel is introduced and for a while it spreads and it's very much a minority and often persecuted faith and many times underground. And there's many countries in the world today where that's happening as we speak. Iran comes to mind, you know, a very vibrant, fast-growing church, but also heavily persecuted. And then at some point, though, as that thing continues and as the gospel continues to spread, it gets to a certain size where you can't really persecute your way out of it anymore. And then eventually you see political rulers, they, they notice there's this very large block of the population that um, it sure would help them if they could win their support. And it just is natural that at some point the faith becomes a bit more mainstream and in some situations even becomes the predominant social movement in a country where it's going to unavoidably get caught up into the power systems. And I don't know that that's even possible to not have happen. So I think in certain countries, uh, Africa in particular, or maybe some other places, that's going to be a major issue for theologians in these countries to, to grapple with, of how do they handle that well, um, as they've gone from these small church movements, but God just continues to move. And I celebrate the way that God's moving, but it does bring up a pretty significant question for them. And I would say in the West, we have a very different problem where we've, we're used to having that power and we're losing it. And so a lot of what we've discussed in this podcast is actually a post-Christian society or the collapse of Christendom. And Christendom is the term used to describe what was introduced with Constantine, where the Christian religion became the state-sponsored church all across the Roman Empire and ultimately the Western world. And what we're seeing now, maybe even going all the way back to Constantine, is the collapse of that synthesis where there is no longer Christendom anymore in Europe or increasingly in the United States. And once again, the Christian faith is moving back into minority status. And so, you know, if you compare the trajectory of the church in Africa with the trajectory we're on, it's very different. And I think there's both opportunities and also challenges in each situation, but it's important for us to, to learn how to wrestle with them depending on where we are. So that was definitely a decisive moment, but what followed? What was the trajectory that the church took after the Christianization of Rome? So to this point that we start to see a pretty significant split. 
And officially, these splits didn't really happen until 1054, and I'm particularly talking about Catholic and Orthodox. But actually, with Constantine, there's three major branches of the church that started to diverge. And uh, they are the, the Western Catholic Church centered at Rome, the Eastern Orthodox Church centered at Constantinople, and then the Far Eastern Church, the Syriac Church or even Historian Church, that was spread out, that grew outside the Roman Empire. So let me hit all three of these because they're all very distinct from each other. So in addition to converting to Christianity on his deathbed, Constantine had also formed a new capital city of Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. And he had done this. uh, Rome itself had become dirty and hard to govern, and he just decided to start fresh. So now what you have is you have the power structure of the Roman Empire essentially split. Many of the nobility stayed behind in Rome, and at that point, the Roman church had an assumed a, a very important role in the broader church globally. But, you know, this new church that was going to form in Constantinople, which was the official head of the Roman Empire, it also took on a pretty important role and became very prominent. And so you start to see two very different streams. So in the West, where Rome was located, it was shortly thereafter that all of a sudden, you know, you read of these barbarian invasions of Rome, which were really Germanic tribes um, that were starting to sweep in from the north. And eventually Rome itself was destroyed a few times. It was sacked, it was burned, things started to happen. And within a you know, couple hundred years, the Western Roman Empire was almost entirely destroyed. And, you know, you'd have a few moments of resurgence or you'd have people that still laid claim to a title, but more or less it was defunct. It was no longer happening. And it was in the, these moments of collapse, the church was the power structure that was left. And, and so some of this is accidental where you had an empire or you'd have a ruler of the city who would just disappear and it was left to the Bishop of Rome, now what we know as the Pope, was the guy who actually had to go negotiate with the barbarians for the peace of the city. And, you know, and then the church ended up having to take over, you know, things like the trash service, you know, things like that, where it wasn't even something they planned on, but the church was forced to step into the void as the power structures collapsed. And I think that's important to know kind of the trajectory that we see in the Catholic Church over time, because they were forced into it at one level. And I find it really fascinating that the very tribes that were invading, they conquered Rome but the church conquered them. They came to know Jesus through the process. And, you know, some of that was very oppressive where, you know, a king would convert and force his whole tribe to convert. So I'm not saying it was all glorious, but it still is fascinating to me that even though Rome was destroyed, ultimately all the tribes ended up coming to Christ. And you see that, the Germanic tribes and then into the British Isles, the, you know, we read about Irish monks during this um, later era, fascinating story about how God used them in really profound ways, all the way up into Scandinavia, eventually into the Slavic countries and Russia. Uh, it's wild. You know, I mean, these were the barbarian tribes of the north that were completely uncivilized from a Roman perspective. And yet, even though they eventually developed the military power to conquer Rome, it was the church that they ultimately came to. And, and the church really became the glue that held that society together in a time of very massive upheaval and transition happening across Europe. So that's all happening in the West. Now, because that's all happening, the church became a major power broker in this whole process. And this is where you start to see many of the corruptions come into place, where um, it was not uncommon, especially as you get into the 800, 900, you know, into the turn of the first millennium, that you start to see things like bishop seats are getting sold. And you have, it's very common to have bishops or the Pope would have a bunch of concubines or just, you know, all kinds of things where they're, they're basically acting almost entirely like secular rulers. Their time is spent with very political concerns. Uh, you know, you think of the Christianity of the apostles 
at this point, it looks nothing like that in the formal hierarchy of the Western Church and all kinds of controversies that were taking place as a result of all this corruption. Now, what that doesn't mean, though, is that the entire church was corrupted. And I I think the most vibrant thing from this era was the monastic movements that started to spring up. And this was a response. You know, you saw these earnest believers, and it actually, this started happening even prior to Constantine. And they saw, though, over time, they saw the corruption that took place in the cities and in some of the formal hierarchies. And so this was the group of people that first went to the desert, often solitary. Then they started to realize that they needed to have community. And then they started to develop this understanding that you can't just be a monastic in the desert, but ultimately you need to um, be engaged with society. And they became places of vibrant spiritual renewal. And many of their spiritual practices and insights are still influential today. And so whether that's the Irish or other different groups that took up that tradition, that became what I believe to be kind of the burning heart or the vibrant spirituality of the West. Yeah, the, the monastic traditions are, are such a, a rich part of our Christian heritage. And going back and, and reading from a variety of sources and even into like the, the French ascetics and Teresa of Avila and the response to these corruptions at the seat of power birth this kind of contemplative spiritual movement that's still impacting us today. And actually, I think there's an interesting rebirth of this monastic contemplative spirituality that we see, that we've commented on in the past in this podcast, that we see happening around us and some of the reactions to more of the charismatic Pentecostal movements, blending this this deep meditative spirituality that really a lot of it has its roots in this era here in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, with people pulling away from these centers of power to demonstrate a different type of spirituality, trying to hearken back to this earlier time period where you had this this homeless, poor rabbi that's leading this very organic movement out in the fringes of society. And and uh, though certainly some of the practices probably went too far, and if you read about it, it's not this pure form of spirituality, but what they captured in terms of prayer and simplicity is to be lauded. And a lot of that, I think, serves for a model for us today in a very materialistic and very wealthy culture. We can learn a lot from this monastic period. Yeah, make great points on the monastics. And I think we're starting to see some themes that I think run throughout church history, one of them being like we mentioned earlier, that as the church grows in an area, it has to grapple with material wealth and power. And that's unavoidable. I don't think it's some, I don't think it's as simple as saying we just don't have power. It's just, it's actually a more fundamental understanding of how do we handle it wisely and not allow it to consume us. And I think the monastics are partially a response to that, but still need to figure out how do they speak back into society in in a tangible and practical way. And that Um, You start to see that even in some of the monastic tradition of strategically placing themselves on major highways or at crossroads so that they can speak back into culture. And I think it was actually in the monastic movement that even though there was a major upheaval across Western Europe and the collapse of Rome, I think that was a significant part of the glue that held it together. Um, You can read the famous book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, that speaks to that. But I think it goes even beyond that, other aspects of the monastic movement that served as these bastions that provided a cohesiveness to keep society together. So that's going on in the West, and so you see this monastic movement on the one hand, you see various renewal movements that were in response to the increasing corruption of the upper echelons of church leadership. So all this is kind of happening, and it eventually builds to the Reformation, which we'll get to at a different time. In the East, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you have a very different dynamic. And the city of Constantine 
wasn't conquered until I believe it was the 14th century by Turkish invaders. And so where Rome had been sacked 900 years earlier and really had ceased to function as a viable political entity beyond just a city-state hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, it wasn't until much later that that same thing happened to Constantinople. And so what that meant is that the church in the East grew up alongside of a pretty stable power structure. And it was a city that we have forgotten about, but in its day was, you know, the epicenter of wealth and beauty and opulence in the world. And the church was right there in the thick of it. And that's still reflected in some of the Eastern Orthodox views or the Greek Orthodox views of the church-state relationship. They don't really see there being any distance between political power and church power, but the two are wedded together. So to understand the split between Catholic and Orthodox, you got to go back really to the era of Constantine, where at that point, the way the church operated is that bishops had apostolic authority. And what we mean by that is that they were in continuity with the very first apostles, or at least this was the claim, going all the way back to the original disciples of Jesus. And as we mentioned previously, in an oral culture, that's a really big deal. And so later, the canons were formalized, and the creeds were formalized. But it was this very important thing for the church to be shown in continuity with apostolic teaching. And so that developed ultimately to having a system where bishops would preside over, typically over metropolitan areas, and that included the rural communities that surrounded a city. So you might have a bishop of Ephesus, but they need to have the surrounding towns would all fit under this bishop's authority. And so on issues of doctrine or things related to the church, the way that those were resolved is that the bishops would gather together for a council, and then they would have a time of discussion and prayer, and some of these councils actually got really rowdy. But that was how things were ultimately decided coming out of councils. What started to happen, though, with distance between Rome and with Constantinople is this new doctrine was put forward by the bishop of Rome that he was actually in the chair of Peter because Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And this idea came to be that, that the bishop of Rome was the leader of the other bishops. And to some extent, that was actually accepted by the Greek Orthodox, but they saw him as the first among equals. And they still felt that major doctrinal issues should be decided by councils whereas the Bishop of Rome thought that there was actually an inherent authority in that title and in that chair that gave him authority at some level over the other bishops. And there was a hierarchy where ultimately the Bishop of Rome, what we now know to be the Pope, was the leader of the other bishops. In addition to that, you had language differences. So the western half of the empire spoke Latin and the eastern half spoke Greek. So you have two different governments, you have two different languages, and then you have two different ecclesiologies ultimately about how doctrine is supposed to be decided. And so by the time the East and the Western Church split, for all intents and purposes, they had been split for hundreds of years prior to that. What actually came to a head in that moment is known as the Floki Clause and the Nicene Creed. I'm not going to get into that. It's pretty technical. But the salient point for this episode is that the Bishop of Rome decided to unilaterally make a change to a long-established creed. And the Greek Orthodox Church did not accept that. Their, their idea was that you can't do that on your own. The only way you can do that is by gathering the bishops together at a council and us all deciding together. You don't have the authority to make that kind of claim. And even after the Reformation, this is actually the Anglican Church, what their understanding was is they would kind of look at this and they'd agree with the Greek Orthodox. And that was why they split, is because what they're saying is essentially that, you know, we had a bishop and we adhere to all the councils of the church, and so we, we just don't adhere to the authority of the Pope. And so the things that the Pope does unilaterally, we don't accept that, but we do accept all the other things that would be a part of the, the Catholic tradition 
or the Orthodox tradition. So the Anglicans, Orthodox, and Catholics all adhere to the church councils, but the primary difference is their understanding of the Pope's authority. So this is the landscape of the church between the Orthodox and the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's great. And I think my knowledge was limited to those two branches of the church until actually fairly recently. And one of my mentors here in Waco gave me a book a little while back and introduced me to this whole third expression of the church at this time period that was, as you mentioned, even further out east. Tell us a little bit about the Syriac church and these eastern expressions that were extremely vibrant and actually are a huge part of church history that not many people know about today. What's wild, and the book you can read is The Lost History of Christianity by Philip Jenkins, and I um, highly encourage you to check it out for a very different story of the church. But what's wild is that the Far Eastern Church, around the time of the split between the East and West, there were more Christians under the authority of the Far Eastern Church than were under the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And that's, I mean, you think that was just a thousand years ago, that was the state of Christianity. And this represents the church that grew outside the power base of the Roman Empire. What I find significant about this is all the things we said about Constantine and the way that it affected the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church actually had the reverse effect on this church because suddenly they got linked to a Roman faith. And, you know, at at that point around the 300 or 312 when Constantine converted, you know, their, their epicenter was in Persia. And so the Persian government, who's the bitter enemies of Rome, When they saw Constantine convert, they started heavily persecuting Christians because they were associated with Rome all of a sudden. They were traitors to Persia. And yet still, despite that, this church was able to thrive. And this is one of the most vibrant missionary churches that I know of. They were the ones that sent missionaries all the way to China at a relatively early time period. And so there was Christians in India all throughout Central Asia, all the way into China, I believe as early as the 600 ADs. And they were these monastic missionaries that would go really far down um, the Silk Road and take the gospel with them. And so you think, you know, just how early Christianity was introduced into all these different countries, predating Islam or many of the other faiths that took root. And, and I think that's just a fascinating history of Christianity. And the church thrived. It's not like they just went and barely got anything going. In fact, they started very large centers, and there's vibrant churches in many of these different cities that endured for centuries. Um, and it really wasn't until Timor Lane and, you know, or prior to that, some of the Mongol conquests put a lot of uh, pressure on the church. And, and eventually, this church was almost entirely destroyed in a bunch of genocide campaigns. And actually, even very recently, some of the few surviving churches in the Middle East with the rise of ISIS in Syria and Iraq ended up destroying some of the last remnants in those countries. So it's really a sad history. What I find powerful about this church, though, is seeing that The history of the church is not just where the church was brought into the power structure of Rome, and yet we can actually see large branches of the church that grew up entirely outside of that. And I think there's a lot to learn there and a lot to study there. Great. So we've got the Roman Catholic Church, whose seat of power is in Rome. You have the Eastern Orthodox Church, whose seat of power is in Constantinople. And then you have this kind of thriving Syriac church that sadly was decimated in many parts of the world through these various conquests. So this brings us to what, about the 12th, 13th, 14th century? Yes. And that ends up being a really wild time in human history. The 14th century was an absolute disaster for Europe. And actually, all the way into Asia, you could probably say the same thing. Uh, Incredible destruction that took place. And so I mentioned earlier, Timor Lane, 
um, in the Mongol invasions, if you go look up the loss of life that occurred with that, uh, most of that was outside of, of Western Europe. And so if you have a Eurocentric history, you may not read about it as much. But if you go into Central Asia, even into parts of China, throughout the Middle East, unbelievable upheaval and destruction that occurred. Genghis Khan alone decimated, literally decimated a tenth of the Earth's population under one conquest. One conquest. I mean, it's it's staggering. You know, that's we've talked about before. Whatever challenges we have in our day, it, it's hard to wrap your head around what went on during this time period. But then in Europe, once you get to the 14th century, you have the plagues. And uh, I think it was one plague alone. It was a third of Europe's population died, which is just unreal to think about that level of destruction. You know, and it it actually, you had farming field, like you couldn't even farm the fields because so much of the labor force had been killed. There was marauding gangs of people. I mean, we're talking like a hundred years worth of destruction. Then you had the hundred years war between England and France. I mean, just thing after thing after thing that really brought destruction all across the earth. It was a time of tremendous social upheaval and change. To put that in perspective, a third of the population that'd be, and this is not to minimize at all the effects of COVID, uh, what, 600 50,000 deaths in America, but that would be a third of the American population would be 120 million people. Uh, yeah, you just can't even, you can't even fathom it, what that would have been like. And so that really broke a lot of things in the world and broke open a lot of things in the world. So there, there is a lot of change that's suddenly taking place that's happening really all across the world. And so the far Eastern church is collapsing. Um, this opens the door in a lot of ways for the Turkish evaders that will eventually destroy Constantinople. And the Eastern Orthodox Church will exist as a minority under Turkish rule, really up until the modern era. So that, that works a fundamental change for both branches of the Eastern Church. So then in the West, I think this is in the background of some of the events that lead up to the Reformation. So for a bit of context, prior to this, there was the scholastic movement, which were the precursors to the modern universities. And there was a lot of scientific discovery that was taking place up and through the 13th century. And this is where I get frustrated with a lot of popular history tellings where you kind of have this view of there being this dark ages. And then suddenly you have this enlightenment where people start to discover science for the first time. It's kind of this glorification of modernity that I don't think is accurate or helpful. I think a better telling is there's a gradual development of sciences that are taking place under the Catholic Church and through the full endorsement of the Catholic Church. Then there's a really climatic century where a lot of social upheaval and change occurs that sets everything back for at least 100 years. But eventually the project gets picked up again, but the church is weakened and society is weakened, and that opens the door for a lot of simultaneous developments. The first and foremost of these is the Protestant Reformation. And this is the breaking point, really going all the way back to Constantine, of the wedding of the church to power. The Pope had started to claim more and more authority and autonomy, and it just got to the point where the practices in the Western Church had gotten so outlandish that there was multiple reformers that come along. And Martin Luther was not the first one, but his reformation was the one that eventually took hold. And and I think if his hadn't, somebody else's would have. It just was not a tenable situation anymore. And, um, you know, he famously nails his 95 thesis on the wall and ultimately sparks the Protestant Reformation. But there was a general dissatisfaction with the corruption of the Western Church, and that's what led to this moment. Then it's not that long after that that the sciences and all the scientific discoveries that had started happening actually much earlier are starting to flower suddenly, and that kind of gets wedded in at points with the Reformation, but also develops separately from the Reformation, and that is what 
really gives rise to modernity and so much of what we talk about in this podcast all kind of came out of this very climatic time period. And so you have the Catholic Church that's trying to sustain its power base and its influence. You have a Protestant Reformation that actually splinters in several different directions where you have the Lutherans that eventually becomes the state-sponsored church of Germany. You have the reform movements, which is the teaching of Zwingli or John Calvin that was initially centered in Switzerland, but then took off in a lot of other countries as well. You have the Anglicans, which were they were kind of trying to find a middle ground where they bought into some of the ideas of the Reformation, but also decided to retain a bit more of what they had from the Catholic Church. And then you have the Anabaptists, and these were the radical Reformation. These were the, the ones who had the idea to completely separate the church from the state, who started baptizing adults. And practices today that are actually fairly commonplace, at the time, these were entirely radical, and they were the ones who pioneered that radical edge. Great. So as we pivot into the Reformation, what are some of the, the commonalities? What are some of the threads that tie the whole movement together? So the core issue that drove the Reformation was the worldliness of the church. And if you remember, they bought into this idea of apostolic succession. So if the legitimacy of the church was in apostolic succession, how do you grapple with such overt widespread corruption? And that's a really significant challenge. And so what Luther and the Reformation pioneered were three significant teachings. First is salvation by grace through faith alone. So the church was not the dispenser of salvation, but salvation was the free grace of God that was accessed by faith. And to be fair, Catholic teaching has always emphasized grace, but also, especially in the medieval era, focused on the church as the one who more or less dispensed the grace of God or controlled the grace of God. And so what Luther was doing was making a really big shift there to say that, no, grace is available to anyone, and it's only accessed by faith, not just through the teachings or the sacraments of the church. Second major point was sola scriptura. And what this was doing is elevating the role of scripture over and against tradition. And it doesn't minimize tradition. In fact, the early reformers had a very high view of tradition. But what they were careful to, to highlight is that the scripture has the final authority over the traditions of the church. And then lastly, the priesthood of all believers. And what this is talking about is that a believer does not need a mediator between man and God, but instead every believer has access to the Spirit without having the church or some person, a priest, or some form of the hierarchy being a mediator. So these are the, the things that tied the Protestant Reformation together. That all being the case, the Reformation quickly split into several different streams. So first you have the Lutheran, and this was the, uh, the original, and it came from Martin Luther. And this is the German state church, and it tended to emphasize Luther's theory of forensic justification, talking a lot about how it's just purely the grace of God that saves us. It, it eventually became pretty cold, and pretty intellectual, but it was actually out of the Lutheran church, there was a second Reformation that took place. And from there you get the Pietists and the Moravians, and these were the Christians that really focused on the internal work of God in our own heart. And so much of the language we talk about today of loving Jesus or following Jesus on an individual level came from these pietists that ultimately came from the Lutheran church. So the second major branch is the Reformed church. And this had a more thorough doctrinal development. John Calvin is the major person associated with this, where he really developed a whole doctrinal, systematic doctrinal system initially centered in Switzerland, but eventually ended up in the Netherlands or places like Scotland in the Presbyterian Church. Third major stream is Anglican, and what the Anglicans did is actually a hybrid of Protestant and Catholic, where 
Some of the core Protestant teaching, the big three I mentioned earlier, the Anglican Church, would affirm that, but they sought to retain as much of their Catholic heritage as possible and sought a middle way between things like Lutheranism or the Reformed churches with the Catholic Church. And it was actually later from the Anglicans, it had these successive renewal movements that brought us groups like the Puritans, which ended up being the Founding Fathers, or the Pilgrims, you know, you may know that, in the early United States, um, and also the Methodist and the Wesleyan movements with John Wesley and the Great Awakening revivals. And I would say, as you start looking to who we are as contemporary expressions of church, this is where a lot of our roots came from, out of both the Puritans, the Baptist, and the Methodist, all kind of came from this stream. The final group, the fourth major stream coming out of the Reformation, were the Anabaptist churches. And these were the radicals. All the other branches of the church still had some level of connection between church and state. Some of those problems of power that we talked about with Constantine, they hadn't quite worked out a theory there. Whereas the Anabaptists, they decided to say that we're going to make a more radical break and actually promote a complete separation of church and state. They're also the first ones to start baptizing adults, which is, again, a very radical move at that time. And so even though the Anabaptist stream is relatively small, especially as far as its modern expression, it did end up introducing ideas that shaped the future of the church in a lot of significant ways. So here's the point of going through all that history, is where we are today came from somewhere. And you can actually see, you can see the Pietists and the Moravians, they actually influenced John Wesley, and they have a significant influence still today on our modern spirituality. Uh, You can see the Methodist, and it was actually out of the Methodist that the Pentecostal movements were birthed and a lot of modern charismatic theology. You know, you can just draw straight lines back to these different groups. And I find it fascinating that despite the really chaotic nature of church history, and as you read church history, you read about a lot of difficult things and people that were not godly people that were somehow influential in the history of the church, you know, so it's not all roses. But what fascinates me is that you can still see the hand of the Spirit moving despite all of it. And that gives me so much hope, so much hope that in our day, even though I look around and I see a lot of things that are imperfect and seem very flawed, it doesn't mean the Spirit stopped working. And I think that's the testimony of church history, that God has left himself a witness and the Spirit of God continues to move through the church. So we'll continue to pick up episodes on church history in the coming weeks and do what we can to introduce some ideas. Once again, just as a reminder, there's no way to do a perfect comprehensive history, so we're just doing snapshots of eras and encourage you to go back to last week's episode to highlight a few resources that we'd point you to if this is an area of interest. And that's a great place to stop today as we looked at kind of Constantine through this early part of the Reformation. And as promised, we'll continue this dialogue here for another couple of weeks. And we look forward to picking this back up again here in the next week or two. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. about a small minor providence i just said all that wrong <laughs> hey you're on again come on Fadi, sit down <laughs> what's up everybody <laughs> i'm sorry i don't know I don't apologize oh you're good get some peanut m&ms while you're at it you guys had a party in here we contend and believe for revival and for power or ugh. we contend and believe let me i'm sorry Mick. there's gonna be a lot of editing today <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that could go at the end of the episode